inspiring and equipping you to live the life you're destined to live. This is the Ascend Men Podcast. This is the third episode in our series on forgiveness and reconciliation. Terry Waite was born just outside Wilmslow in Cheshire in 1939. In 1980, he was recruited as a special advisor and chief travel companion by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runsey. He had particular success in helping to negotiate the release of several hostages from Iran and later Libya in the early 1980s. Then, as a result of what he says was a very dodgy invitation, he visited Lebanon in January 1987 to negotiate with the Islamic Jihad. The goal was to secure the release of British hostage John McCarthy, Northern Irish Brian Keenan and five Americans. He was taken hostage and kept in solitary confinement for almost five years. Other than for a 10 minute toilet visit, he spent every day of those five years manacled and chained to the wall with no natural daylight. Blindfolded whenever anybody entered his cell, he had no real contact with another human being for most of that time. Finally, after 1,763 days in captivity, he was freed on November the 18th, 1991. If anybody has a right to hold on to unforgiveness, it's our guest today. Married to Francis with four children, he's the author of a number of books, including Taken on Trust, to which we'll refer extensively today. He's president and co-founder of Emmaus UK and Hostage International. Last year, he was appointed a Knight Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George in the King's Birthday Honours List, which means that I get to say, welcome to the podcast, Sir Terry. Well, thank you very much, Alan, for that introduction. I'm looking forward to talking with you in this podcast and best wishes to all your listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you, Terry. Now, we don't have many knights on this podcast, so let's talk about that for a minute. Commander of the Order of St. Michael and St. George is known as CMG, Commander Michael George. And James Bond was fictionally decorated with the CMG in 1953. And that's mentioned in From Russia With Love and some other movies. And interestingly, Daniel Craig was awarded the CMG in 2022 for services to film and theatre. So in fiction and in real life, you're in great company, Terry. Yeah, well, there's a slight difference between CMG, Commander of St. Michael and George, and ACMG, which is a Knight Commander. A Knight Commander is called Sir, a CMG... It's, it's not called sir. Not that it matters to me. Well, it's, it's worth knowing for when we get when we get Daniel Craig on the uh, on the podcast. I'll remember that one. Thank you. <laughs> it's one of the senior orders of knighthood, and I was really quite surprised to get it. I mean, I had a CBE before, Commander of the British Empire, which is not increasingly less empire to command. <laughs> and I was also a member of the British Empire, which all came to me years ago. So this is the end of the line now. Uh, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> now, other than a guaranteed table reservation at your favourite restaurant, which I believe is Roast in Borough Market in Southwark, um, what has been the biggest benefit of being knighted? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I suppose it would enable people to recognise that um, you might well be trustworthy, although... Not all people who've been knighted are trustworthy by any means, but some, most of them are. 
that it's an honour given by the state and a recognition that um, possibly you've made some contribution uh, to the welfare of other people. That was certainly my case. I mean, the knighthood was given to me for engaging in humanitarian activities um, virtually across a lifetime. To follow that with another couple of quickfire questions, I read in 2015 that a Canadian Rockies rail journey was on your bucket list. Have you done it? No, I haven't. I haven't done that. I've travelled the Trans-Siberian Railway from Moscow to Beijing, and I've travelled in Australia from Perth across to Melbourne, across the Narrabor Plain, which is 400 miles of actually blank countryside, no trees at all. But I've never done the Rockies, and uh, I doubt now, given my age, <laughs> I'm approaching 85. I doubt now that I'm going to do it, unfortunately. Can I just remind you, you're going to New Zealand at the start of 2024. Uh, so if you can go to New Zealand, you can go across the Rockies on a train. <laughs> now, you had an extremely limited diet whilst you were in captivity. What was the one food that you fantasised about? I didn't. I didn't fantasise about food at all. And I don't think that would have been helpful to me. Um, what I did, I, what the food I received, which was meagre, um, I was simply grateful for it, grateful to have something to eat. And I used to say to myself, be thankful for what you've got, because there are many people who don't even have what you've got. I remember one Christmas day, a guard came in the cell. He was not a very um, pleasant guard, and I knew that he wouldn't provide much. And I got for my Christmas lunch a cold tomato and a cold-boiled egg. And that was my Christmas lunch. And I thought to myself, well, be thankful for that. As I said, lots of people don't even get that. Uh, so the, the, the real way to cope with that situation is to recognize that you still have life, you have something to eat, you're still alive, and uh, be thankful for that. Yeah. And, and in fact, for the first week in captivity, I uh, read in your book that you refused to eat anything. What, what was behind that? Well, I was angry when I was captured. I was angry at my, for myself for taking such a risk to go and see uh, hostages. Um, the, the story, briefly, is that I was told that I would be given permission to see the hostages, one of whom was about to die. And I thought to myself, should I take this? It's a very high risk. And I said to my captors, I said, if I come with you, you'll keep me. And they said, no, they wouldn't. So I asked them to give me 24 hours to think about it. And they said, okay. And I got different advice. You can imagine the advice I got. Some said, don't go near it. Some said, you'll be all right. Hmm. Some said, we're not sure. I myself was very uncertain. But uh, I think in situations like this, when you do something for other people, consciously or, or unconsciously, you're doing something for yourself. And my mind went as follows, that if they're telling me the truth and that man dies in captivity and I haven't had the courage of my convictions to go and see him, I'm going to have to live with my conscience for the rest of my life. So there's a personal motive. Mm. So I went and was captured. And when I was captured, I was angry. I was angry with my captors for breaking their word. And I was angry with myself. And one way of my way of dealing with that was to say, well, you've captured me physically, 
you haven't captured me completely. I still have control over my mind. And so I didn't eat for a week. After that week, they uh, said, if you don't eat now, which will make you eat. And by then, I anger, I got control of anger. See, anger is a normal human emotion. I mean, we all have it, and it need not be totally negative. Without it, it's, it can be a stimulant. Mm. But if we allow anger to get the better of us, it will do us more harm than against those whom it's held. And I wrote a short poem. I wrote a book called Out of the Silence, which is a book of poems and reflections. And I think, I'm quoting from memory, one of the poems reads, Anger is like a consuming fire, seeking all whom it may devour. Do not extinguish the flames totally, but calm yourself by the gentle glow of the embers. In other words, saying, it's a very powerful force. It's within everybody. It can be used negatively and positively. Try and use it positively by uh, warming yourself on the gentle glow of the embers of anger and turn it into something creative. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing the poem as well. One of our pastors at the Sheathu Church has a senior role at Penguin Books. And I know that publisher is particularly close to your heart after reading the story of uh, your request for uh, reading materials. Can you tell us a bit more about that story? The story is that my guards would never bring me books. Uh, They felt that, um, they said, we've never read a book in our lives apart from the Quran. Uh, But I didn't get books for about three and a half years, four years. Um, And so I had to depend entirely on what was in my head. And so eventually I met a good guard, a guard who was kindly, and he said, I'll try and get you a book. And he didn't know what to to buy because he couldn't read English. And of course, he couldn't be seen going into an English bookshop to buy a book because that would have drawn attention to himself. So he picked out a book and brought it to me. And when he came into the cell, of course, I had to be blindfolded. And he dropped the book at my side. And he said, there's a book for you. When he went out of the cell, I picked the book up and I laughed out loud because unknown to himself, he brought me Great Escapes by, <laughs> by Eric Williams. But the next, the next book was even, even worse than that. A couple of weeks later, he came back. This time he brought me, believe it or not, a manual of breastfeeding. Oh, goodness. <laughs> which really wasn't particularly uh, useful to me. I mean, I'd had, uh, my wife and I, we'd had twins uh, many years ago. And I remember sitting up at night, bottle feeding one while she breastfed the other. Mm. And I didn't want to be reminded necessarily of those no. days, which no. would be tiring. So... Uh, when he came into the cell to ask me, I, 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 I didn't want him to bring me any more sort of books that were not useful books or a book that would help me. So I did. I asked for a pen and paper, which he gave me a few, for a few moments, and I drew the picture of a penguin as best I could. Not very good at drawing. And I said, if you see that on the front of a book, buy it. It'll be a good book. Um, penguin books, of course. And... Um, of course, he, he did, and uh, he, he brought me Penguin Books. I was always grateful to 
the Penguin Publishers for publishing such a wide range of books and such interesting books. So Nigel, take that back to your management. That's a that's a, a compliment from Terry there. <laughs> I think what you said in, in, in another conversation was brought to you the importance of the symbol and how it crosses boundaries. And I think what it what it shows me is that one of the things you are famous for is finding some way of communicating with people even when they may not share a common language and made you a natural negotiator in Africa and, and later in the Middle East. At one stage, you were told that you had five hours to live. You said three simple things. You have the power to break my body and you've tried. You have the power to bend my mind and you've tried, but my soul is not yours to possess. And I'm wondering if there are any lasting effects, either good or bad, of that, that experience on your body, your mind and your soul. I don't think there are any lasting effects. I mean, it was an event in life, which was a traumatic event. Um, I genuinely thought it was I was going to be killed because many hostages had been killed. Uh, I didn't want to die at that point um, without my family knowing how I had lived. And, of course, I felt I was too young to die. Um it wasn't death that I was afraid of as such. I don't feel that I'm afraid of death. Of course, I don't think it's something you particularly look forward to. But um, I wasn't particularly afraid of death. What I was afraid of was how would I die? Would it be a painful death? Would they shoot me, strangle me, whatever? I didn't know. Um, and that was the fear of it. But um, it's left no, no um, as far as I'm aware, it's left no long-standing difficulties for me. But I do know, of course, people who have been through experiences like that have suffered as a result of uh, post-traumatic stress, which mercifully I did not seem to have, at least in any serious degree. Now, you're a man of faith, and a few of your prayers are mentioned in your book. One of them, you said, God, I need you, your healing, your grace, your love, your forgiveness. Uh, and, oh, God, show me your compassion. I didn't read in your book anything where you prayed to be released. And I'm curious, did you pray for that? No, I didn't. No. See, I, I don't, I think this, this question um, points to the whole purpose of prayer. Now, I, first of all, I don't believe that if you have faith, you're necessarily subject to special treatment or special protection. I think you take as a human being your chances in life along with the rest of humanity. I mean, some people say, well, look at X, he or she has have faith, and yet they've been stricken down with this dreadful illness. Um, and why should that be? Well, the answer is that we live in a world in which there is suffering, and suffering, to a greater or lesser degree, affects everybody. But I don't believe that necessarily, because we have faith, we are necessarily protected from that. What I think faith does, it enables you to have resources to cope with whatever may come, so that if you face a disaster or you face a, an illness, you can face it with reasonable calmness, uh, because you have those resources that you are not just um, a body, so to speak, but there is a soul. Now, if you ask me to define what soul is, I find that extremely difficult. But soul, it's almost as though 
um, we are in our being. Um, uh, well, let me put it this way. When someone dies, if anyone, if anyone listened to this has seen a, a person die or seen a dead body, you know very well that when you see that body, something has gone out of that body. The life has gone out of it. Now, what is the life? The life is the essence of that person. Some call it the soul. Um, now, life is a great mystery. We, 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 we have beliefs. Different religions have different beliefs. But most of the great religions have the belief that there is, uh, there is a soul, there is another part of us, uh, which is essential to our life and which is not totally dependent upon the body. But for the, for the time we're on Earth, it's dependent upon the body. And so, um, uh, therefore, I didn't uh, pray, uh, to come back to your question, to be released. Uh, I, I think one, the, the, the correct prayer is to say, if you have belief, um, what, what, what the Lord's Prayer says, thy will be done. Master, talking about faith, you did a great deal of self-analysis whilst in prison, not surprisingly. And uh, your faith was something that you thought a lot about. And in your book, you talk about uh, it being exposed for what it was, uncertain, questioning and vulnerable. And uh, something else that came up as, as you were writing was that uh, you had a friend, Christine, who once intuitively told you that in seeking the liberation of hostages, you were in reality seeking your own liberation. And then you ask yourself, you know, what does inner liberation really mean? Is it freedom from fear or darkness or anxiety? That, those kind of ruminations and that, those discussions that must have happened so intensely with somebody with no other stimulus. Um, I'm wondering where you got to in that thinking around faith and inner liberation. Well, I think often we attribute motives, things that we do, whilst the motive might not necessarily be absolutely accurate. The fact is that, you know, in seeking liberation of others, yes, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But also, perhaps at a deeper level, you are seeking inner liberation. Uh, and the, the answer to all that is really, during life, perhaps a useful goal is to try and get to know yourself better try and understand yourself better, try and understand your motives, and not to fool yourself. We are, we are great human beings, are great at deceiving themselves. Very great. We can deceive ourselves. I can deceive myself very easily that I'm doing something for this purpose where I'm really doing something for myself. <laughs> and we can continue with that charade right across life. Um, and increasingly... Yeah. You know, when you have time for inner reflection, this is where the period of inner reflection, either a, a time to be quiet or a time for retreat, I think is important because it gives you an opportunity to look within and to examine yourself within, not to be over-scrupulous, but just to be, just to be sensible and reasonable. The danger of taking an inner journey, which I had an opportunity to do in captivity, is that when you do that, you discover the two sides of character, the light and the dark, if you like, or good and evil, what you can, what you will. And those two sides are in every human being. The danger of this, of course, is that when you come across the side that you're not particularly proud of, the side which is the negative side, you can become 
terribly depressed. And the answer to that one is, um, first of all, uh, recognize that we're all made the same way. All human beings are made the same way. We all have the two sides to our character. And the answer to try is to try and find some degree of harmony. You can never walk totally in the light. Never. Um, you will always be touched by the other side. But try and find some balance. And that's, a, again, one of the, one a reasonable goal to work for in life, to find some degree of balance. Call it harmony. I mean, I think there are three, three things, really, three reasonable goals in life to work for inner harmony, to work for harmony with your neighbor, whoever your neighbor may be, and to work for harmony with your environment. Because we are a part of this environment. And if you look at the world today, often we're out of harmony with ourselves, or many people are, because of incidences of mental illness and mental breakdown are increasing uh, at a rapid pace. We're often out of harmony with our neighbor, and I just noticed that in the last few weeks, when the way in which people have become more aggressive in behavior, particularly on the roads. Um, that very short fuse, very short temper. And also, uh, without question, we're out of, out of harmony with the environment, which we're rapidly destroying. I mean, I think some of our policies, for example, if I may just stray for a moment, of building uh, properties uh, on green, green land on, are just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, not only do they despoil the countryside, but also given the way in which the world is going at the moment, the chances are that in the future we shall have to import, we shall have to grow rather, more of our own food, rather than because importation costs are going to rise and rise, and the world population is going to rise, so the demand for food will be greater. And we need our agricultural land. Now is the time to be putting investment into that, rather than covering it with concrete. And the, 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 the nonsense that these houses are being built uh, for um, people who need them is just not true. It's, it's untrue, because they can only build, they're built for people who can afford them. And the vast majority of homeless people just could not stand one chance of getting, getting a mortgage or getting a house. And the number of homeless people are going up. So we're not really, by just building houses, we're not really tackling the root problems of homelessness. We're not tackling the root problems of poverty. And what we see as a result of policies over the last years are a great divide between the almost obscenely wealthy people and the very, very poor people who, um, uh, who are increasing. And this is, uh, again, totally out of harmony. Totally out of harmony. And so I think uh, and people say, well, what can we do about this? How can we change this situation? Well, the, part of the answer to that is each one of us can act within our own area of influence. We all have influence. It's rather like dropping a stone into a pond. If you drop the stone into the pond, the ripples go out and you never know where they're going to finish. And it's like that with a good and compassionate action that's taken by somebody. That, that can spread and spread and carry uh, and make a, make a change, make a difference. 
so, but to do that, we have to be in reasonable harmony with ourselves and reasonable harmony with our neighbours. I want to go to Taken on Trust, which was the book you wrote in your head whilst in captivity, and then you put down on paper, handwritten whilst at Trinity College here in Cambridge um, in the early 90s, which became a bestseller. Halfway through chapter four, there's a particular passage that I'd love you to read to our listeners. Pillows are placed over my head. The man in the suit sits on the pillows. I struggle to move my head so that I can breathe properly. Someone removes the blanket covering my feet. Oh, God, give me strength. A sudden pain shoots across the soles of my feet and convulses my whole body. I want to cry out, but my face is pressed into the pillow. Another blow sears my skin and another and another. God, how much more? The old man must be beating me with a cable. After a dozen or so strokes, he stops and runs his fingers down the length of my foot to see if there is still feeling. When he discovers from my reaction there is, he resumes the beating. I clench my fists and tense my whole body. My feet hurt so much, so much. Finally, he stops. The man in the suit gets up and takes the pillows from my head. I lie quivering with nervous reaction. Now you will tell us. There is nothing more to tell. Uh, a powerful passage that brings home the brutality of, uh, of, of one of your days in captivity. Uh, and I've heard you say this about that incident. Although extremely painful, you still feel a pity and a sympathy for the person who was committing that act. And I have to say, Terry, I am really struggling to imagine how you feel pity and sympathy in a situation like that. Well, he's a fellow human being. He probably... I don't know who it was, but he probably has a family, probably has children, and uh, probably goes home from this event uh, and resumes his family life. He's a divided person, and he's giving way to the other side of his character, which is to brutalize. Um, I'm sorry for that, because by doing that, he is doing himself no good. He's destroying himself um, by attempting to destroy another human being. And that's where I'm against uh, killing other people. Uh, of course I am. It's a manifestation of the, the dark side of character. And I, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry that um, he's fallen into that trap. I've met people uh, in later life who have killed people, some, um, killed several people. And whilst they've done it at the time, in later life, they have great remorse and great feeling, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I've stopped someone's life. I've paid someone's life. It comes back from it. hits them. And one can only feel pity and sorry for that, sorrow, sorrow for that. Uh, I'm astonished at your... Sorry. I'm interested in your visit back to Hezbollah in 2012. Uh, you met with Amar Massawi, is that right? Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, how did that, how did that conversation go? I went at night to see them. They were surprised to see me. I went back because I believe that always you should work to try and find reconciliation. Um, you shouldn't just allow uh, warfare to continue and enmity to continue. Things can be repaired and things can be uh, restored. Now, Hezbollah had changed. They had become an established political party now from being a terrorist group. And if you recollect, that's not an unusual pattern. 
The same thing with Nelson Mandela, if you remember. Nelson Mandela was condemned as a terrorist. Mm -hmm. Eventually, he was lauded as president of South Africa. Things change. So I went back, and I, I, I they actually apologized to me. They said, "We're what can we do uh, to make amends? And I said that I'd just come back from the border, the Lebanese border. I'd seen people who were sick and cold. Could they let me have heating oil for them? And they said, yes, they would do it. Now, that's only a small political gesture. I mean, it will not change um, things dramatically. But it was the beginning of a, a reconciliation process, um, the beginning of healing. And we should all be concerned about healing rather than let enmity continue uh, try and find it but you've got to you've got to find the right time i mean it wouldn't have been right to go back immediately a couple of years later and this was some years later i went back it's a question of timing and it's a question of sincerity being sincere in your desire to actually um find reconciliation and find healing and that's what we need in the world we need at the moment of course as i'm recording this with you the war is raging in Gaza. And that's a tremendous, um, it's been coming for a long time. It's a tremendous failure. It's failure by the uh, Israeli leadership. It's failure by the Palestinian leadership. It's failure by the international community to deal with this situation. And who are the people who suffer? The innocent people, women and children. And somehow, uh, the, the mistaken belief that warfare is going to resolve this problem. It will not. You will not resolve it by warfare. You will resolve it by, by fair dealing and by just treatment of people. That has to happen on both sides, for the Israelis as well as for the Palestinians. And it's going to be an extremely difficult road now to walk back from this situation where so many have been killed. But we're recording this just before Christmas. And I cannot help but remember that this Christmas, so many innocent people, uh, women and children, and in particular children, are suffering as a result of warfare and as a result of the failure of people to be reasonable and to negotiate. And that is a very, very sad reflection on human nature. Um, we, may, we may come back to that if there's time, but I just want to keep exploring forgiveness and reconciliation just for a little longer. Uh, on, on the podcast two weeks ago, we heard from Everett Worthington, who talked about two types of forgiveness, decisional and emotional. Um, decisional forgiveness, uh, as, as, as a definition, is a behavioural intention to resist an unforgiving stance and to respond differently towards the transgressor. In, in my English, it's in your head. Emotional forgiveness is the replacement of negative, unforgiving emotions with positive, other-oriented emotions, in my words, in your heart. Do you recognise those two different elements and how that applied to you in your forgiveness of the perpetrators of your kidnapping? Well, I've never thought of it like that. And if I may say so, it sounds far too technical. <laughs> far too academic. <laughs> it's an academic response. And I imagine, I assume, it's a reasonable response. <laughs> but um, I, I've never thought of it in that terms. I've just thought of it as being a natural, normal human act, hmm. um, which involves your whole person. You forgive um, uh, because, and partly also because you recognize that you yourself need forgiveness. Hmm. 
I mean, there are times when I need forgiveness, of course, uh, for things that I have done which have been less than honorable. And if I need forgiveness, then it's automatic that I should be able to forgive other people. I put it as simply as that. I don't think it's a long, complicated process. I think it's a normal, um, reasonable human response. In a recent conversation you had with Premier Christian News, you said that you'd learned the importance of seeking reconciliation through times of division. And you, you mentioned that you don't have to agree with what people do to be able to forgive. If you can't forgive, it restricts your own future. Forgiveness is liberating. And, and I'm wondering how that liberation felt for you. How did you feel liberated after forgiving your captors? Well, I didn't feel as I'd done anything great at all. I didn't necessarily feel any different. I just felt that I'd gone to do something which I needed to do and was part of a natural, normal process of, of moving on. So I, I, it didn't necessarily make me feel good or anything like that. I just felt, well, at least there's something done there. There's been some attempt made to be a reasonable human being. And that's all I could say. It's nothing more, more difficult than that. Now, you were taken hostage and interrogated specifically around an arms deal that Colonel Oliver North in the United States was making with Iran at the time. And I'm wondering, was that ever acknowledged by the Americans? Oh, yes, it was certainly investigated thoroughly by America um, and uh, was recognised that it was totally wrong. Uh, and I mean, I was simply linked with it. Uh, I had nothing to do with it, but, but because I was engaged in negotiations uh, in that part of the world where the Americans were, my name was automatically linked with it. I mean, my captors made the one of the reasons they captured me because they assumed incorrectly that I was an agent of America, which I wasn't. And of course, when I was um, uh, I was released when they realised that I wasn't an agent of America, that I was a, was a humanitarian. I think if I had been uh, an agent, um, I would have been killed because uh, any anyone who was associated with the military or with intelligence and was captured was murdered. Um, I wasn't, so um, I was very fortunate to, to escape that. But I was compromised politically, but. Um, there we are. These things happen. Anybody who knows political life will know that it's a, a duplicitous game at times and uh, innocent people get caught up in it. Uh, as, you, as you've already said, Sir Terry, we are recording this just before Christmas uh, and you've already mentioned the, the conflict uh, in Israel. In October, there were 240 Israelites captured by Hamas. And as of today, there are still well over 100 men, women and children being held hostage now, when you were being held hostage, your cousin and broadcaster, John Waite, managed to get a message through to you through the BBC Outlook programme. And I, I don't think we can do that uh, to get a message to those hostages in, in, in Gaza at the moment. But if we could, what would your message be to them? Well, a message to them. And also, there are others on the other side who are hostages in a different way, who are trapped because of military warfare. So there are hostages, if you like, different kinds of hostages on both sides. And it's very difficult to uh, to give, uh, to, to say much constructive at this moment until the warfare ceases. What one could say is 
do not lose hope. Uh, keep hope alive where you can. And do not allow this experience to turn to bitterness and to lead to further trouble in the future. Um, hopefully, those of you, those hostages who are captured will be returned to their families. And hopefully, those who are hostages in Palestine in a different way, hostages to warfare, will experience peace. That is what we have to work for. That is what the international community has to work for and push for. And I'm sorry, very sorry indeed, that um, the United States administration and the British administration have not really called more loudly for ceasefire in this situation. And I think it's, I think it's, it indicates that we are, they are of the belief that warfare will resolve it and it will not resolve it. It will not. It will create more trouble in the long run. So I would say keep hope alive and keep hope alive that common sense will prevail and peace will be in the hearts and minds of people on both sides of the divide. Yeah. You, you talked about the oil for the refugees and how in itself it wasn't a major action, but you talk about how many small actions can have a transformative effect. And in that discussion, you talk about 10,000 people from Israel and 10,000 people from the occupied territories linking hands to build some political settlement. And yet we are so far away from that at the moment. It's, uh, it's hard to comprehend. Back to small actions. Are there some small actions that we could be taking at the moment to try to inject something into these horrendous events that, that we hear about? Well, there is in, in, in that part of the world, of course, there is never Shalom, which is a community where um, Jews and uh, um, others, uh, Arabs, gather and, and show that it can be done. They're under tremendous pressure at the moment. Um, tremendous pressure. I think we could. Uh, one thing to do is to support that, to look up this organisation, and to give them those support, to write to them, say we support you. Let people know that we are supporting the peace. We're not supporting warfare. We're supporting peace, and give support to those who are attempting, under extremely difficult circumstances, to work for reconciliation. So I'll find some more information on that and put it in the show notes. If you're listening to this and you want to do something meaningful, please uh, refer to the notes. Now, just a couple of questions because we are running out of time, I'm afraid. But you said before going into captivity, you were sympathetic to people on the margins of life who had suffered. But you said that having been held hostage, you now have empathy for them. And, and to quote you, you said, you're knowing what it's like to have nothing, knowing what it's like to be kicked around, to know what it's like to be anxious or afraid. How can we as a society become more empathic without enduring, obviously, what you have been through? By getting to know ourselves better. Self-knowledge is important. Mm. Um, refusing to deceive yourself, to be reasonably honest about yourself. That's a difficult process. It's a lifelong process. But I think that's the beginning. That's the first step. To begin to know yourself. And when you know yourself and your weaknesses and your vulnerability, you can be a little more compassionate to others who have weaknesses and vulnerability. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, in, in your book, you say, I'm not a bureaucrat and I am much more at home involved in the rough and tumble of life, which is exactly where I believe the church ought to be. So if Sir Terry were to found a church, 
other than the spiritual elements of silence and time for contemplation and good teaching, prayer, liturgy, the things which are really meaningful to you, what rough and tumble of life would your church get involved with? The church is today in all its different aspects. It is seeking to serve the poor, and there are many church organizations who are doing that. It is seeking to encourage reconciliation. It is seeking to encourage self-knowledge. It's encouraging us to be more in harmony with each other. It's all, already these things are being, are being done. The thing is, we don't hear a lot of what is being done. The newspapers will constantly give us news, and that news has to be dramatic news and bad news. And we get the impression at times that everything is bad, everything is terrible, everything is falling apart. When I go around the country and I see church groups and different groups, I'm extremely encouraged because they're doing many good things which are never given publicity apart from their, in their own area. Uh, so uh, I would uh, not have the supreme arrogance to found a church. I would never wish to do that. <laughs> but what I would do is encourage uh, the, the, the church to fulfill its mission and to continue uh, to do some of the good things that it's doing. And it does matter uh, that we don't get the publicity that we deserve, but that's the way of the world. Right at the start of your hostage experience, you reflected on your early years. You, you talked about uh, being alone in your childhood, uh, maybe not all the time, but you were a solitary individual. And you, you say to yourself, now it is part of your strength. You know how to be alone. And I have no doubt that it helped. But when you were released, at times, did you crave to return back to that solitude? No, no, because you take solitude with you. Um, you grow into solitude. I mean, there are times in my life when I couldn't bear solitude. I, I, I never, ever now feel lonely. I never feel lonely because um, uh, things have developed, things have grown, things have changed. I've learned how to embrace solitude as a friend rather than see it as a threat. And there's a big difference between solitude and loneliness. Um, if you are... I think everybody needs a period of solitude in their life, a point, a place of solitude in their life, a place for withdrawal. And if you've got that, you are more able to be with others. You often find in the religious life, um, where people have committed themselves to the religious life, that, um, to a life which is primarily composed of silence, that they are some of the best communicators in the world, if you've ever spoken with them. They communicate personally and in a, in a very beautiful way because they have learned to embrace solitude and it's enabled them to be more human and more fully human. Well, as we start to wrap up, our theme this month is forgiveness and reconciliation. And based on how you've put that into practice powerfully in your life, I'm wondering what would you say to our listeners who may be carrying unforgiveness of themselves or others, or perhaps who haven't found reconciliation like you have? I would say, be, be gentle with yourself. Don't push yourself too hard. Um, you know, just be gentle with yourself. And where where you have things in your life that are troubling you, if there is someone absolutely trustworthy, absolutely trustworthy, whom you can share that with, perhaps share it with them. 
um, because a trouble shared is a trouble halved, as they say. There's a certain truth in that. But you have to find someone who's absolutely trustworthy to do that. I mean, I'm constantly these days in touch by Zoom with people all over the world who have problems, and they 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 I'm fortunate enough for them to share them those with me, and just by sharing and by talking together and by putting things into perspective, um, that can be a tremendous help. But as I say, be gentle, be careful. Um, Great. So, so Terry, you are an inspiration and somewhat of a dichotomy. Uh, you pour yourself into relationships and trust, and yet you're a self-confessed loner at times. You live out your love through your compassionate work, and yet you talk about struggling at times to understand about love. Um, you walk the walk of uh, inner harmony and harmony with neighbors and harmony with the environment, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, I've researched many guests uh, for this podcast, but none have impacted me quite like you. And I genuinely hope some of who you are has rubbed off on our listeners. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Alan. And all best wishes to, to all your listeners. That's it for this Ascend Men podcast. If you've enjoyed this content, please share it with a mate. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Together, we are stronger.